Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer Riley, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And I am Ian Rowe, also a senior fellow at AEI. And today we are excited to be joined for a second time by Jay Green. He is our friend and also a senior research fellow at the Heritage Foundation Center for Education Policy. And Jay has a new research paper out, which is slightly not the kind of thing that he usually writes and has caused quite a bit of controversy online. So we wanted to have him come on to talk about it. It's called Puberty Blockers, Cross-Sex Hormones, and Youth Suicide. Welcome, Jay. Thanks for having me on the show again. So tell us a little bit about the background, like what led you to write this paper, which is a little bit, as I said, kind of outside of your usual topics, which tend to focus more on education reform. Right. Although I do think this is connected to ed reform, and I I think we can get there in the conversation. But the impetus for this was really that I attended an all-day conference that my colleague Jay Richards organized at the Heritage Foundation on this issue of gender ideology. I was kind of horrified by everything I heard that day. And I and a central part of, of what I heard was that a lot of, of what is going on is being driven by an empirical claim. The claim is that what's called gender affirming care, that is puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones, should be made widely and readily available because if we don't, kids will kill themselves. And so this emotional extortion, this threat that if people don't get on board, kids will die. Even if their parents are not on board. Right. Getting getting parents on board, getting policymakers on board, getting psychologists on board, getting school staff on board. Everyone needs to get on board or kids will die. And this is an empirical claim. So I thought, well, I'm good at empirical claims. And so I looked at, at the evidence behind it, uh, discovered that it was thin and 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 very weak. Uh, and then I thought of a better way to do it. Um, and that that was the the new study that came out from the Heritage Foundation last week. So tell us about the thinness of the claim, because I want to start there because there are sort of two pieces to your research here. One is talking about the claims that have been made. And the other one is kind of new claims that you are making based on your own research. So let's talk about kind of what's uh, the thinness of the claims this idea that um, suicide is being caused by denying uh, young people access to, quote unquote, gender affirming care um, or or cross sex hormones. Sure. So uh, as it turns out, I can only find three studies that look at the connection between puberty blockers or cross sex hormones and youth suicide that involve a comparison group. I mean, there are some other studies that are pre-post studies, um, simply comparing people before they got the drugs to after the drugs. That that research design is clearly inadequate and and should not be persuasive. So there are three studies with a comparison group. Two of them have been led by a guy named Jack Turbin, who is at Stanford Medical School. Uh, One has been done by the Trevor Project, which is a, a trans LGBTQ advocacy organization. Turbin himself is also a very vocal um, LGBTQ activist and advocate, if you look at his Twitter feed, for example. So, but that's not what's indicting. It's not a problem that advocates produce research. Uh, People might say, I'm an advocate, uh, but it doesn't disqualify research that it's produced by advocates. What disqualifies it is how poorly they attempt to make the comparison and how obviously flawed it is. So, the, the comparison that they do 
is they they use a convenience sample of adults who identify as transgender. That is, they basically went to uh, trans advocacy organizations and said, give us your mailing list. And then they give a survey to those adults who identify as transgender. Now, that's not the main problem with the with the research, but it is a problem, uh, which is that this is not a representative sample of young people with gender dysphoria. This, these are the people who are remain committed to this um, path uh, as adults. And so it would not include unhappy customers, people with negative outcomes, negative experiences, um, would, would be very unlikely to be included in the survey. And therefore, it's not representative and biased in an obvious and predictable way. But that's not the real problem. The real problem with this research is that it compare it it simply asks people when you were a teenager did you seek these drugs and did you get these drugs and then it it asks them about whether they've thought about suicide more recently as adults and the problem with this comparison is that those who sought and did not get the drugs uh, may not have gotten the drugs because one of the criteria for getting them is that you're supposed to be psychologically stable so, so the outcome that they're measuring is related to what would cause some people to be in the control group. They're asking people about their psychological health now, and their psychological health would determine whether they got the drugs uh, uh, earlier when they were teenagers. And so it's a, it's, a, it's a clearly distorted comparison. In addition to all those problems, there's also clear indication of what's called p-hacking or specification shopping in this research. So they changed the outcome measure and they changed the control variables across the studies and even within the studies in ways that are not theoretically justified and look like they're attempting to change the model to ensure until they get the desired outcome. So they they change whether they're looking at suicidal ideation in the last 12 months or ever, and they change what other control variables are introduced into the model from analysis to analysis within the same study. And there's no, there's no good theoretical reason for, for changing models in that way. So it looks like p-hacking as well. Let's put it this way. To approve any drug initially for use, the FDA requires that there be a randomized experiment where by lottery, some people get the drug and some people do not, and then they compare outcomes over time. That kind of study has never been done for these drugs for these uses. And so the confident claims of the Biden administration and trans advocates is completely inconsistent with the type of evidence rigor that we would normally demand for making such claims by the FDA. No, it's interesting because this this has come up, you know, in in the research that I do on foster youth, because there are supposedly a disproportionate percentage of kids in the foster care system who identify as trans. And so there is actually quite a bit of pressure to offer these kids uh, in foster care these drugs. Uh, California is actually requiring that foster parents um, support gender affirming care in various ways. And, you know, a number of the um, the folks I've talked to, the therapists I've talked to have said, you know, these are, are kids who are coming in with, you know, a huge number of, uh, you know, mental illness challenges from depression, possible schizophrenia all sorts of other things. And, and we're just sort of saying here, you know, try these, these puberty blockers, you know, because you're identifying as trans and we're not even kind of dealing with 
all of the other psychological problems that they may be experiencing as a result of their previous experience. So it's all sort of just, and, and so if you include these kids, I suspect in the kind of, in the pool of people who are you know, engaged in some kind of suicidal ideation, it would be really hard to just suggest that it was only the gender dysphoria they may be experiencing that's causing that as well. I think that's exactly right. This whole issue appears to be related, at least in part, to severe underlying mental health issues that young people have. Um, look, it's tough growing up. There are a lot of challenges, especially that teen girls are facing with exceptionally high rates of, of depression and anxiety. And in the past, teen girls, um, to address these problems, have sought unproductive solutions like eating disorders or cutting. And the new uh, trans movement seems to be picking up a lot of those same teenage girls, but instead of bulimia or anorexia or cutting, they're instead engaging in a different type of body transformation, pharmacologically or uh, eventually surgically. And they, they're drawn to these solutions because they think this physical change uh, is going to address the inner turmoil that they're experiencing. But you know, in the past, when when girls would come to school with obvious eating disorders or with, with evidence of cutting, the adults would see this and recognize it as a problem. And the adults, the teachers, the guidance counselors would get together with the parents and they would say, we have a problem. Let's work together to see how we can address the underlying mental health issues that these girls have. But now, instead of saying this desire to transform oneself physically uh, is a manifestation of a problem, it's seen as a true expression of identity, which needs to be affirmed, or else the child's life will be at risk. And so rather than the adults getting together and working on a problem, they are now working across purposes where the adults in school are keeping it secret from the parents, undermining the parents, and failing to ask any questions about underlying mental health issues about depression and anxiety, because doing so would be seen as questioning or failing to affirm uh, a true expression of identity. And according to the new Biden regulations on Title IX and the new HHS letter that, that was issued by the Biden administration, might be seen as engaged in engaging in conversion therapy. So conversion, conversion is ultimately behind this whole thing. Were it not for the coercive threat, the kids will kill themselves. And without the coercion of, of Biden regulations about conversion therapy, it's unlikely that many adults would get on board and facilitate this. And without the facilitation um, and, and, uh, and, and you know, activity of adults here, I, the, the steam would be taken out of this craze and it would begin to disappear. It's interesting to say conversion therapy on what, in effect, is allowing a biological girl to remain a biological girl, right? Right. It would be considered conversion therapy if you question the expression of the child's true identity as not being a biological girl. Yeah. I mean, what you're describing is what many people call social contagion, Right. That, you know, the New York Times just did a story that suddenly this incredible jump in the number of um, children that are um, describing themselves as trans or just expressing gender dysphoria. Like older women, for example, are suddenly 
there's now a, a, a shift in older women like Naomi. I presume you're you're still pretty confident you are who you are as a as a woman. Oh, as of this morning. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, but how do you how do you counter that? Because what's the evidence to actually say this is more social contagion and narrative than it is actual? Because you don't deny that there is something, there are human beings on this planet that have this kind of belief about themselves that is in fact true, but this this velocity of conversation about this topic seems like it's more contagion than anything else. Right. I I think there are people uh, and have always been people who intensely feel like the biological sex in which they were born does not represent their true self. Now, I don't know what the truth of that claim is, but I, I believe that people intensely feel that and have always intensely feel, felt that. But that's been a very small number of people. And that I don't think describes what we're seeing now. And I think you're right, Ian, that what we're seeing now is, is a social contagion. And I think one of the ways we know that that is true is that it's almost entirely occur the rise is almost entirely occurring among girls. If this were simply a greater social acceptance and understanding of people allowing them to express their true self, we would see an increase among both boys and girls um, in, in comparable ways. And in fact, it is interesting that in the past, this expression of being feeling like one was in the wrong body was something particularly present in boys, men, largely, and girls were significantly underrepresented. Now they're significantly overrepresented. And the, the switch of, of going from underrepresented to overrepresented makes it feel like it's more social contagion, causing the the dramatic rise and not the authentic uh, expression of people's true self. So let's talk about kind of the part of your study that sort of you constructed and and what you found with regard to suicide rates and cross-sex hormones and puberty blockers. What how did you construct your study and and what were your findings? So I took advantage of a natural policy experiment. Now this is is much worse than a true experiment. A true experiment would be like the kind that the FDA would require of these drugs, where by chance some kids would be assigned them the drugs and by chance some kids would not, and we would compare their outcomes over time to see how they fared. Uh, we don't have that kind of study. Frankly, if, if advocates by administration were serious and, and so convinced, they, sh- they should conduct such a study and prove it. But short of that, we can take advantage of a natural policy experiment. The natural policy experiment is made possible by the fact, two two big facts. One is that these drugs did not exist as a treatment for just gender dysphoria in the United States before 2010. The very first clinic to prescribe puberty blockers was in Boston in 2007. It only had a handful of patients. Other clinics opened up around 2010. And then we know that that a large number of prescriptions began to be written around 2015. So this is a, a relatively new thing in the United States that didn't exist really before 2010. And so we could take advantage of that, there's, that there's a change that occurred. And then we could also take advantage of the fact that states have different policies about uh, the ability of minors to access health care without parental consent. 
for reasons that had nothing to do with the transgender issue and that long predated, in most cases, the transgender issue, uh, some states allowed minors to access healthcare, any kind of healthcare sometimes, without parental consent, at least under some circumstances. And other states had no provision in law for that to happen. And so this is just one extra barrier that would be present or not present for kids to get these drugs. And that barrier is effectively randomly assigned because, again, the pattern of which states had these minor access provisions was created for reasons that had nothing to do with the gender issue at all and preceded the gender issue. So uh, and if you look at the pattern, red and blue states all across the country are in both categories of having a minor access provision and not having minor access provision. So what I do is I compare the annual suicide rates in states that have this provision to states that don't have the provision. The provision is removing one barrier to kids getting the drugs, maybe not the most important barrier, but a barrier. And I compare those the difference in the suicide rates over time. And what you see is before 2010, there is no difference between these two different kinds of states. And after 2010, the difference spikes up. So that in the states where there's one less barrier to the kids getting the drugs, you see a dramatic rise in the suicide rate. How much of a difference are we talking about, Jay? Like, give us an example of a state where the suicide rate was X and then you see it spike. What I mean, because obviously it's it's a still it's a still a pretty small number in every yes. state. Yeah. I mean, very fortunately, suicide is rare. It's alarming and horrific uh, when when young people take their lives, but but it is thankfully very rare. So what we're talking about is, is, by 2020 is an extra 1.6 suicides per 100,000 young people in states that have don't have this extra barrier to minors accessing mm-hmm. these drugs, and a 1.6 extra suicide is actually a 14 percent increase in the, right. the suicide rate, which averages 11.1 uh, during this period in these states. So how are you, I guess, one question I had looking at this, I mean, I, I had the feeling looking at this, that this suggested that the opponents that we were just talking about are wrong. But then I also, but I'm not sure that I immediately made the same leap that you did to the fact that it was the prescription of these hormone blockers that was responsible for it. So for instance, like the, you know, Gene Twenge's work on, you know, the proliferation of everybody having smartphones and, you know, she goes to, uh, you know, enormous efforts in her book to try to isolate the effects of social media on kids over a particular period of time and suggest that that may be responsible for higher suicide rates in certain places. Now, I know obviously you're looking at at particular states, but how can we be sure that other factors weren't the things that were responsible for this? Well, we can't be completely certain. Again, the only way to have really high confidence would be to have the randomized experiment that ought to be done if advocates want to actually uh, prove what they're claiming. And you're right. I think at at a minimum, we should see this as um, a warning that this confident claim that these drugs are necessary to save lives appears very unlikely. But why why do I think that it's it's actually credible to believe that it's access to puberty blockers and cross sex hormones that's exacerbating the suicide rate in states where it's easier for kids to access them? 
And the reason for it is is the is that we're comparing comparing states based on the existence of this provision, so that if there are any national trends in suicide, they would be netted out. So if it's true that access to smartphones is exacerbating suicide, there is no reason to believe that that is something that only occurs in states that have a minor access provision relative to states that don't. And importantly, you know, in addition to comparing different categories of states, uh, I'm also controlling for things that happened in an age group that's slightly older. That is kids who turned 18 in 2010. I also look at at, at the changes in suicide rates for that age group. Um, they would be unaffected by a minor access provision, but they're still young. And if there are any general trends going on in suicide, in suicides in these states, it would be captured by that. And we actually see no change at all in the suicide rates for a slightly older population uh, between these different kinds of states. But we only see it among young people who would be affected by the minor access provision. So, look, the other kinds of things that could account for the pattern I'm observing would be other medical interventions that only are introduced after 2010. But look, I, I also have I use Google Trends to map the as a proxy for for how frequently these drugs are being prescribed. And what you see is the spike up in the suicide rate corresponds really closely to the spike up in the Google trends for terms like puberty blockers, transgender, gender dysphoria, and gender identity disorder. So again, all I'm doing is is reducing the number of possible other things it could be, but you can't eliminate everything uh, unless you actually do a randomized experiment, because then the only thing that distinguishes between your treatment and control group is chance. Mm-hmm. Here I'm making it so that chance is an important factor in what differentiates treatment from, from control, but it might not be the only factor. So you alluded to it in our few minutes left, the Biden administration seems like they're taking the information on the other side and and now wanting to put almost shift title 9 to also as you know as opposed to just being focused on reducing discrimination based on sex to now sounds like reinterpret its original meeting to include things like sexual identity for the very kinds of discrimination that you're saying is being trumped up in a sense so what's what's your reaction? How how should we all be responding to these kinds of now legislative moves that seems to be taking into account these theories? Politically, I don't understand why the Biden administration is doubling down on this. It seems like a like a, a disaster um, and it feels like they're being captured by very committed ideologues within their own administration and party, because I think electorally, this is doesn't play very well. Again, without the coercive threats of suicide or legal action against you, most people across the political spectrum are skeptical that a huge number of girls suddenly uh, um, uh, need to transform their bodies uh, so that they appear to be boys. And even the media conversation seems to be shifting on this, too, right. back I in the more that- reasonable direction on this. Yeah. I agree. I I actually think things are going to turn in. This feels like a craze that requires constantly constant recruitment of new recruits 
to sustain itself. And as that begins to fade, it will fall apart. Now, Parents Defending Education has has very cleverly dubbed the new Biden regulation. Must say they. Yes, must say they. That's very clever. I think what they're getting at, again, is something that is really fairly extreme. I don't again, I don't understand politically. I, I can't speak to the legal issues. That's beyond my my area. I although I share your skepticism, Ian, that that any of this is actually supported in law. But the the way they're interpreting that law by issuing these regulations appears to me to be politically disastrous. And I think they're gonna suffer uh at the ballot box. And I'm hopeful then that you know people will correct and that will return to something more sensible for taking the coercion out of this and allowing families and to work together with with the adults in schools and therapists and and address the problems their kids have in real ways. Yeah. You know, there are lots of complaints about kind of the shortage of mental health care now and therapists and psychiatrists. And, you know, one one criticism has especially of treating kids has always been, well, the first thing we do is give them drugs, whether it's for ADHD or something else. And this seems like it also might fall into that category of, you know, this this seems like a, a faster way if we just say, oh, it's medical. You know, this is like having, you know, the flu or something. And we'll obviously just give them this X medication. But I, I appreciate your comparison that if if folks genuinely believe that this is just a medical condition, then we should be, you know, putting the FDA in charge and having a randomized control trial here. Right. And the only way that the FDA doesn't have to do that is that these drugs were approved for other uses. And these are off label uses, which allows people to prescribe them, even though they've never been evaluated by the FDA for treatment of gender dysphoria. Well, one thing that's interesting, I mean, you've done the study based on the, you know, the momentous step of actually administering drugs. There are a lot of points well before where a child may just be expressing, you know, some confusion. And yet there's still this insistence on gender affirming policy. So well, even before you get to potentially even puberty blockers where a child may in a school say, you know, I'm Sam, but I want to be known as Samantha. And I don't want to tell my parents and the school goes along with it. So how do we what's your stance on that? Well, before we even get into the dangers of medicine, how should we treat these issues where parents are being locked out, even of knowing that their kids are having these kinds of uh, issues where they want to be known by something that they're not called at home? So this first step you're describing is what's called social transition, where kids change their names, change their pronouns, change their sex in official records like school records, uh, change what sports teams they're on, what bathrooms they're using, and so on. That's all called social transition. And yes, that's largely occurring in schools facilitated by the adults in those schools, often in secret from parents. And that, to me, is disastrous. We cannot be cutting parents out major decisions about their child's lives. Uh, The adults in the child's life uh, have to be working together with the parents, not against them, in trying to figure out how best to move forward uh, with with handling various kinds of problems that kids have. And now, a lot of the initial recruitment for this occurs from peers. Girls are recruiting other girls, often online. But then it's the school that, that sweeps in to affirm 
in secret from the parents. And that's social transition. Social transition leads to pharmacological transition, puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones, which then leads to surgical transition, double mastectomies, for example. Better known as top surgery. Top surgery. It's quite extraordinary, the language that's used here, isn't it? It is. It is. And I again, I think the only way you could get adults on board for for all of this would be uh, if they believe that something worse was, was going to happen if they don't. That is, if, if the kid was going to die. So it's this suicide threat that drives a lot of the other activity. And if you take that threat off the table, because I don't think it's true, and if anything, it, the opposite is true, because I think what we're doing is we're failing to address underlying mental health issues and leaving those unaddressed causes more suicides. Um, but but if we take that threat off the table, we allow the adults to work together better and address the underlying issues. And and again, if, if a child does intensely feel that they're in the wrong body, then we have to find a constructive way of handling that too. But that I think is extremely rare. Yeah. Well, this has been another episode of Are You Kidding Me? We really appreciate Jay Green coming on to talk to us about this topic today. And you can read his report at the Heritage Foundation's website. And you can get episodes of Are You Kidding Me? on the AEI podcast channel or wherever you get your podcasts. So this is Naomi Schaefer-Riley. And this is Ian Rowe. Jay, thank you very much for doing the research, for having the courage to talk about these issues. I know it's not easy. But I think all of us can agree we just want the best outcomes for kids and we don't want artificial decisions being made based on faulty premises. And so thank you for adding an important new piece of evidence and data to the conversation. Well, I, look, I know this is an unpleasant topic and I appreciate you having me on to talk about it because I agree this is important, but I'm also feeling encouraged that we're turning the corner on this craze. All right. Thanks again, Jay. Take care. Thank you. Thank you.